This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Uh, Sam and I are coming to you today with what is the last message in our series on the life of Peter, uh, and to Acts chapter 10 and the story of Peter and a man named Cornelius. Uh, let's start uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 1. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So Cornelius has a vision here, but give people a sense of, of kind of who Cornelius is and what do we know about him? Well, he's a Gentile. And in that first century culture, most of the Jews, people who are devout Jews, see the Gentiles as outsiders. They're called dogs oftentimes. They're not seen as being wanted in the covenant of God. And you know, it's at this point when the gospel is spreading that one of the main messages is this is not just for one particular race or nationality. This this is for the nations, mm -hmm. and it causes us to stop for a moment and remember that when God first launches this, you know, His mission of redemption from the beginning in Genesis three, you know, with Adam, the promise that's given after they fall is that a savior is going to come to crush the head of the snake for all mm -hmm. humanity. Um, when And it keeps going. The promise given to Noah of God's mercy is given to all of humanity, not one tribe or nation. When you get to Abraham and God singles out a specific people, the promise is, I'm going to bring about a, a Messiah, a Savior through your tribe, Abraham, to bless all peoples on earth. And at some point along the way, the Jews were like, okay, he's clearly using us. And then they became exclusive about it, like this is all about us. This mm -hmm. is only for us. And that was never God's mission, ever. And so now with the gospel, you have the Jews, the apostles, being called to go to the ends of the earth to reach the Gentiles. So Cornelius is one of these Gentiles who loves God. He loves you know, the, the God of the Hebrews. With all of his might, he's giving alms, he's praying, he's doing all these things. But at the same time, in that culture, he is still an outsider. Um, and God, in this chapter, is going to come with a battering ram to blow that door open and use Peter to reach this devout, God-fearing man. I, I feel like it has to be unusual that a Roman commander like that would be a God-fearing man. Was it? You would think so. But mm -hmm. in the Bible, you find that happening multiple times. Like there's a, there's a Roman centurion who helped to build the synagogue in Capernaum, if you remember. Mm -hmm. And there's one time where his servant is ill and he comes and he says, hey, Jesus, you know, you know, from a message, please, I need you to come and heal my servant. And Jesus marvels at the faith of that centurion. You remember when Jesus is on the cross, it's the Roman centurion who cries out when Jesus dies, and the Roman centurion sees the manner in which he dies. He cries out, surely this man was the Son of God. And here you have another centurion um, who is in Caesarea, which, by the way, is where the bigwigs lived. You know, you can go there and walk around in the ruins of the palace there that's unbelievable. The marble floors and the pillars, everything is still there. It's in ruins, but it's unbelievably beautiful right on the Mediterranean. And so this is where all the powerful ones. So for this guy to be stationed there, he carried a lot of pull, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, 
and here's another centurion. So it seems that the Lord is using these centurions to influence Roman, you know, soldiers who are going all over the world. I'm, you know, in the Lord's playbook, you can just see these people who are stationed at a place, but then go all over the world. The Lord is strategically using all these military figures to spread the gospel. Now, I can't tell you that happened, but it seems very odd that you find so many centurions in the scriptures coming mm-hmm. to faith. And those would be, would have been men of some influence. I mean, one of the things we talked very about much. in our study notes this week is that a centurion commanded a, a, a group of between 80 and 100 soldiers. Um, mm-hmm. So these guys were very influential people. They weren't like your rank-and-file mm-hmm. Roman soldiers. Um, I also think that it, it, it kind of speaks to this question that um, some maybe modern-day Christians have when they think about what well before Jesus, you know, back back in the before days in the Old Testament and stuff, didn't God want people? You know, what what about people in every other country or every other nation other than mm-hmm. Israel? And these kinds of things, these stories that we see, the message of the one true God was not confined just to Israel. There were people, yeah. as you have said, of every tribe and nation. Maybe not quite as widespread as it became. In the New Testament, but mm-hmm. certainly it was not unheard of. Absolutely not. So you, I mean, you could walk through the Old Testament and <laughs> warning, <laughs> I might try. Did I just set um, something off that I'm going to regret? <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll try to be brief. Uh, but like Tamar, from the beginning, Judah in Genesis, you know, she's a Gentile who's grafted into the line of Christ. You see Bathsheba, who's married to Uriah the Hittite, so she's probably a Gentile. There's so many in the book of Exodus, those that come out of Egypt with the Hebrews, it tells us that there are many, many people who come out of Egypt with the Israelites, who are going to be circumcised, who are grafted into the nation of Israel. Well, what about um, Ruth? Ruth? Yeah. Yeah, Ruth, uh, who's a Moabitess, who is a really scandalous tribe, is grafted in. I mean, you go through the Old Testament, and time and time again, what you see is outsiders grafted in. And the way that I, I used to teach my kids, I don't know if this is totally theologically correct, but it worked for me, um, <laughs> is in the Old Testament – Everything is being drawn in to Israel. Like, you know, you, you get grafted into Israel. So you think, you know, everything is coming toward Jerusalem. Right. But then in the New Testament, now God is taking his people and saying, no, 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 it's not just, you know, this magnetic power to bring people into the covenant that comes to us. Now you go out. And it's like, you know, I, I used to tell my students, all of the most powerful, ex, you know, explosive forces that you can think of, tsunamis, H-bombs, supernovas, it all begins with like this sucking in, and then it generates so much power that it can't contain itself in this little ball, and then it explodes out with great force. Mm-hmm. That's Old Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament is the pulling in, and the New Testament is the exploding out. And that's that's kind of how I've always seen it. Hmm. Um, but he's constant. He's pulling the other nations in in the Old Testament, but in the the New Testament, he's exploding the true people of God to go out to all nations. So, in this particular instance, we've got Cornelius. Would you say, from what we see just here in the in the opening section of chapter ten, um, would you say that Cornelius was a, you know? Was a believer at this point? I mean, I, he he. I don't know. I mean, it seems like he's very devout, but but isn't necessarily a what we would consider to be saved or a believer at this point. He hasn't heard the gospel yet. I I would agree with that. Okay. I I think he's very devout. I think he's a very honorable man. I think he's probably trying to to earn God's favor in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of the things that you find. Um, when we've been looking last week, we talked about how the miracle that happens in Acts two, where you know Peter's going to preach, right? But it's a reversal of Babel, where they all come together and now they're speaking a language everybody can understand one another. But in in Genesis, so that was Genesis eleven, as the Tower of Babel. In Genesis ten, it walks through the Table of Nations, and the whole point of the Table of Nations, hang with me, I'm going somewhere, is to talk about what happens to the three sons of Noah. So you have Noah has three sons. One of them is Shem, one of them is Japheth, and the other one is Ham. And 
more or less, they each of those three sons and their descendants kind of spread in one of three directions. So Japheth is going to go to Europe, and you know most of Europe is going to be descendants of Japheth. Shem, Shem is going to be you know the Jews come out of the line of Shem, but he goes to the east. And Ham is going to go to the south, down into Africa, Arabia. And generally, that's not exactly precise for all nations, but that's the general trajectory of where they go. Uh-huh. And so what Luke is doing, what God and his sovereignty is doing, if you go to Acts chapter 8 at the beginning of this kind of gospel, you know, spreading out and calling all nations to himself, in Acts 8, you come across the conversion story of the Ethiopian eunuch, who is a descendant of Ham. Then in Acts chapter 9, you have the conversion of the apostle Paul, which is a descendant of Shem. And then here, it makes it very clear that it wants you to know he's not just a centurion, but he's of the Italian cohort, which solidifies in your mind he is a descendant of Japheth. And so the three sons of Noah in these three chapters, Acts 8, Acts 9, and Acts 10, what God is telling you is, you know, all the populations of the world are kind of brought in through Shem, Japheth, and Ham. And in Acts 8, 9, and 10, God is calling the descendants of the three sons of Noah. What he's saying is this kingdom belongs to all humanity. Mm. Um, And so by chasing after a son of Japheth, he completes the picture. It's really a pretty awesome thing (laughs) that this is accomplishing here. All nations. The gospel belongs to all nations. Do you think it's at all unusual that um, God would give a vision to a Gentile like this, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's awesome. It's it's rare, I would assume, mm-hmm. um, especially back then. You know, one of the other things that's interesting about Cornelius is the prophets, like Zechariah chapter one, I think verse twenty one. It talks about how these Gentiles are horns, and the word horn there is, is used as a, as a a picture of judgment that they're going to destroy Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. It talks about, and so the horn here is is this, you know, aggressor, and mm-hmm. the name Cornelius. That's a prophecy that's given hundreds of years earlier, and Cornelius, the name in, in Latin here, literally means of the horn. Hmm. And so everything about him is kind of conjuring up, like you know, this is a Gentile, an outsider. He's he's coming from the line that is aggressive toward Israel, the Roman occupation that's you know trampling us in the dirt. He's of the horn. Even his name means that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's setting up like it's intentionally using this language. God sovereignly is painting this picture to make you understand how difficult it would have been for Cornelius to get in, and how jarring it would have been for Peter to hear, hey, I want you to go after this guy. One more thing in that passage. Um, Caesarea is right on the Mediterranean. Joppa is another famous city that's right on the Mediterranean. This is where Peter is. And one of the things that's interesting (laughs) about Peter being in Joppa is if you look at the entire Old Testament, probably the book that is most famous for talking about the Jews' hostility toward the Gentiles uh, comes in the book of Jonah, right? He does not want to go to to the Assyrians. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he hates the Gentiles. He'll do anything to avoid them. And he makes a decision at the port city of Joppa to get on a boat and to head in the opposite direction toward Tarshish rather than showing any love toward the Gentiles. Hmm. Well, guess where Peter is? Guess where his place of decision is going to be? Would well, it we're be told Joppa? He's yeah, right, yeah. So it's almost saying, like, here's Peter, and he's put in this, the situation of Jonah. Are you going to show love to your Gentile adversaries? Are you going to seek to graft them in and, and share the gospel with them? Or are you going to be like Jonah and try to run away from them? Yeah. And so Peter's got to make that decision. So uh, so we've seen Cornelius's vision. Let's, uh, let's take a look at what happens with Peter down in Joppa. Verse 9 says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. The, the ninth hour, by the way, in the previous thing, was, would be like three in the afternoon. This is like mm-hmm. noon. The sixth yep. hour is midday. Why do you um, go up on a house on your roof at noon? Well, I tell you what, especially in, with you. <laughs> in, well, especially in that part of the world. I yeah. mean, it's it's warm. 
yeah. uh, depending on what time of year it is. But I guess if you're close to the coast, there's a breeze. Yeah. So we'll forgive this. They did a lot of the outdoor living, though, right? Those housetops, they they, yeah. they were like gardens and stuff. Yeah. They, they So, like, remember the miracle where they have to dig through the sod to lower the guy on the mat down yeah, to Jesus? Yeah. Well, the reason why there's grass on the roof is they would literally like they'd make patios because they looked for a breeze. They didn't want to be inside getting baked. They didn't have air conditioning. Um, <laughs> But one of the, you mentioned the time. One of the interesting things there is when Cornelius, it says he's praying at the ninth hour, that's, that's pretty interesting because Jews prayed in the morning at 9 a.m. and they prayed in as the evening prayers happened at 3 p.m. And so when it tells you that Cornelius, and we find out later in I think verse 30, it says that he was praying at 3 when this vision came, it's telling you that Cornelius is even following the Jewish customs of when to pray. Like, he is an all-in guy. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know what Peter's doing at the sixth hour. Well, <laughs> Peter went up to pray at the sixth hour, and and then because it's lunchtime, <laughs> verse 10, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So a very unusual vision. What's with mm-hmm. the sheet? I mean, is this like, is it, was God laying out a tablecloth here? I mean, what's going on, you know? That's the way I always, when I used to hear it, I used to think that. Then I started wondering, like, is he making a tabernacle or something? But then... When you look at this, is really kind of interesting. When you look at the Greek word for sheet, it's othene, and if it's a derivative of the word othneon, which is it's the same. It's linen sheets, but the only other time you see this word used in the New Testament, it's always describing burial cloths. It's the Lord's burial cloths. And now I want you to get this: out of the heavens comes this great, wide open, rolled out linen sheet, and it's descending, and on it come all these things that were traditionally unclean, right? All these things that are out of kosher that Jews are not allowed to eat. But now the Lord says, God has made them clean. Do not call these common anymore. And they're coming down on on this sheet that is the word used for burial cloth. And so it's, I, it makes me wonder, I can't speak definitively here, but it makes me wonder if God is saying, you know, hey, Peter, you remember how you were amazed when you looked into the tomb and you saw the burial cloths? Well, here's another sheet that's descending, and because of what the resurrection has accomplished, now it's on the banquet table. All of this stuff that has been traditionally unclean, the resurrection has made clean. And so now it is kind of a banquet, you know, a banquet cloth. Um, Eat up. Mm. Enjoy. I actually did a little digging into this because we hear about this vision. There's a sheet that comes down from heaven, the big cloth comes down with a bunch of animals in there that Peter can see. And he says, I've never eaten anything that's unclean. If you're not really familiar with the Jewish dietary laws, like I went and, and looked up some information on this and the, the Old Testament dietary laws are extensive. There's a whole list of things you can eat and can't eat. But that actually continues to this day. Um, as I was looking into this, I found out that there is a uh, – that today you have Orthodox Jews who want to keep a kosher kitchen and they follow something called the kashrut or the laws of dietary observance. Um, and the links that they go to, folks, the, the, the division between clean and unclean. Um, and you're like, what do you mean, you know, division between – in a kitchen that's designed for being kosher, they would have to have, like, for example, two sinks. They would have to have two ovens, two sets of dishes and pots and so forth. You can't cook a dish with dairy in it and you and then put meat in that same dish and cook it because dairy, milk and meat are never supposed to meet. In, in fact, if you were to cook something that had milk in it, for example, in an oven – 
that and then put meat in there, it would be contaminated through the steam and which that was uh, zeach and and reksha, <laughs> uh, the odor of the milk. On it's like it can't even be in the warm oven where it might get milk steam on the meat. So <laughs> these these laws are like mm-hmm. really super serious and very particular. Mm-hmm. And yet the other thing about it was that as and I mentioned this when we were talking about it before the show when I was reading about it. I was reading websites that were that were modern day contemporary. They were trying to help, you know, these were Orthodox Jews talking about here's how you can set up your your kosher kitchen. And there was nothing about it that was apologetic or burdensome or or they were it was like a thing of like this is a sense of of pride. It's like mm-hmm. we're different. We're special. We're God's people. We, you know, God, our God told us eat this way and therefore we are pleasing him when we eat this way. Um so the dietary laws were a really big deal. You go to first century, the intensity with which they guarded dietary laws, laws about cleanliness. I mean, it was super, super, super intense. You know, it's it's like you remember one of the ones that always blew me away was like the laws of the Sabbath. You're not allowed to create a fire. You're not allowed to put out a fire if your house catches on fire. You're not allowed to tie a knot. You're not allowed – you know, and it goes down these things, and you're thinking, "Man, that sounds oppressive." You, you remember when Jesus heals the man, mm-hmm. and he says, "Take up your mat and walk." And then right. the, the the religious leaders rebuke him because one of the rules for Sabbath was you're not allowed to carry anything of substance across property lines. And this guy takes up his mat and walks across property lines, and they're freaking out that he's violating the man-made Sabbath laws. Um, and it's like, good grief, can you imagine living in the midst of that? And kosher was every bit, kosher rules, every bit as intense. And it's why one of the reasons why the early church was struggling with, how, okay, how do we allow Gentiles in? Because they, they eat differently. They're not circumcised. They're, you know, they're eating meat that has been sacrificed to pagan gods. What do we do about all this? And this begins the conversation of what is essential and what is not mm. when you're talking about uh, the faith here because Jesus solves all of this. Just We've talked about this before, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament purity laws, the Levitical laws. Why? Because he ultimately like, – remember, all the Levitical laws are in place to make sure that when you go to worship the Lord that you are clean. Mm-hmm. And what has Jesus done? Well, he is the high priest the great high priest. He is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He is the temple. So in Jesus, all of this has been fulfilled. This, you know, the the kind of dietary worship ritual law. Jesus has fulfilled all of that and he's given us freedom from it as what this is communicating, what God has made clean. Well, through the resurrection. Right. Do not call common. And so he's fulfilled. It doesn't mean that, you know, all that was worthless. It just means it's been fulfilled once and for all time for our sakes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this vision was not about food or dietary laws. It was, you know, it was more about mm-hmm. what you just said, that one sentence there, what God has made clean, do not call common. Um, the, God is shaking things up. God is changing things. And mm-hmm. we'll see that in the, in the next paragraph. But I do think that it's interesting here in verse 16 where it says, this happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Any guesses as to why three times? <laughs> yeah, Peter. Peter s- t- tends to work with three times, <laughs> you know. And you remember, there's three denials, and then there's three restorations. And here again, you have the Lord saying, "Hey, this is what I want." And Peter's like, "Oh no, you don't get it, God. That's not clean." And the Lord's like, "Well, no, a second time. Like, let me explain to you <laughs> what God has made clean. Do not call common." And Peter still needs another time. So it happened three times, and you know this again is one of those comforts. Even after Peter is filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, even after he catches all of this boldness, Peter is still Peter, <laughs> you know, yeah. and the Lord is still patient with him. It's pretty. It's pretty wonderful, mm-hmm. you know. I love the fact that it makes. Pe- you know that Peter is so human, and that the scriptures come to us and let us know that he's human. Because 
Peter's trying to clean up God's theology, which is <laughs> which is pretty amazing here. Right. And the Lord is still like, okay, let me repeat it again. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's and that you, again. I my habit of trying to imagine those scenarios. I was imagining something like that, but I think the comfort there is the fact that here's a situation where God gave Peter this vision, which is an which I mean, I've never had a vision from the Lord. Mm-hmm. I imagine it's a very overwhelming thing in terms of your senses and whatnot. You know, Peter, uh, I'm sure Peter had maybe experienced it before, but, you know, just the idea, he fell into a trance, and now he knows God is talking to him and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And yet, when Peter kind of stumbles at getting the point, yeah. God doesn't go, you know, pink, I'm going to knock you <laughs> off the roof. Bring up another apostle. No, God is patient, and he repeats himself to Peter. And that's what I take from the three times there is just God's patience with Peter. Mm-hmm. And then by extrapolation, I'm like, oh, so when I don't get it, God will repeat it for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know? One of the other things just last in this, in this little section, when it talks about this great sheet descending, if we're right to see that as, as you know, the, the burial kind of re- emblem yeah. of resurrection – it's letting down by its four corners upon the earth, it says. And, you know, in the ancient world, the four corners of the earth, you know, they st- we still use that language today. Sure. And what it meant was in every direction, as far as you can go, the entirety of the earth is covered here. Um, and so I love that idea that here comes this emblem of the resurrection that's coming to cover the entire earth and make its resources clean for hmm. us. And cover the whole world, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. So let's see what Peter does next. Verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. I mean, the first thing that, that sticks out to me right here was... Those guys made pretty good time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. 3 p.m. the day before was when Cornelius was praying. He had his vision. I mean, just I'm just going to suggest that there wasn't a time warp thing here. These guys probably didn't get dispatched until 5 o'clock or so. And to travel 35 miles, basically, they went through the night. Mm-hmm. That was, yeah, they're – they're on a mission here. Yeah. It's kind of a serious thing, you know? <laughs> and, you know, there's all these times in the Bible where this happens. And it's like you can see God's, you know, the timing of this where he he gives Cornelius, you know, this this vision of, of an angel talking with him and giving him instruction. And it's like he times it perfectly to where these guys are walking. And when they're getting close, God's like, okay, cue, cue the Peter vision <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to where now Peter's done. And it's like. You know, on the door, yeah, and and Peter's like, I wonder what this is going to be about. (laughs) (laughs) Who could that be at the door? (laughs) Yeah, the Lord and His sovereignty is working everything out according to His perfect timing, Mm -hmm. and that's, I mean, and it here it's within twenty four hours. But you know, how many of us in our lives are wondering like, when is He going to come through on this? Right, and it's just another reminder that the Lord is perfect in His timing. Mm -hmm. We might not get it. But the Lord is is operating on a perfect timetable. Yeah. So Peter, when he's told by the Spirit to go with these guys, and he goes downstairs and greets them, verse 23, it tells us there at the end, it says, so he invited them in to be his guests. That right there is the point at which I say Peter understood what the vision was about. Because for mm-hmm. him to invite those men in, those were Romans. For him to invite those Romans to come into Simon's house and be his guests – that would be a horrendous violation of protocol for a Jew to do that with a Gentile. Agree. Yeah. 
So he easily understood what the vision was about by that point. And because it starts off saying Peter was inwardly perplexed while well, Peter was pondering. And I'm like, but he got it. You know, I mean, I think that I think Peter understood what the vision meant. My my, you know, Lautenschlager translation here, Peter's being perplexed and pondering was Peter thinking, what am I supposed to do with that information? It's mm-hmm. like, I know what you're saying, Lord. You're saying that, okay, it's going to be more than just us. It's going to be, we, you know, this is bigger than us. This is the whole world. What am I supposed to do with that? Um, and I think that, you know, God sending those guys at that point is God saying to Peter, look, I got a big plan. It's a big plan, Peter. It covers the four corners of the earth. We're going to do big things. Start with this one guy. And for Peter, you got to imagine, it's it, this is not a matter of him sitting out there wondering, like, what is God going to think of me? But in, in this particular time in history among Jewish people, if you were friendly and opening and you were saying that the covenant of grace, you know, God's covenant includes all people of faith regardless of their national status, even and especially Romans and soldiers – you know, you may like Peter's got to be thinking this could destroy my ministry with people because yeah. all of the Jews who see this are going to be furious that I'm, you know, having anything to do with these Romans. And so to take this step, it shows you that Peter's putting the mission of God above the mission of zealots and people and, you know, the Pharisees who hated the Romans. Um, this was a huge step of obedience for Peter, living in a culture that is actively being oppressed by these soldiers. Mm-hmm. Like he would have known people who had been mistreated by soldiers, exploited by soldiers, families that were devastated by the taxation and cruelty of Roman soldiers. And to say, I'm going to love them and welcome them in and show hospitality to them and extend grace to them would have infuriated people who wanted nothing but Romans to be destroyed. Yeah. You know, um, and and one of the things that I wanted to add here is that, you know, in true Peter fashion, he needed to have a refresher course in this a little bit later down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, In Galatians 2, Paul talks about his need to go and, and essentially confront Peter um, over over how Peter had started to behave over time. One of the things we know from the history of the early church was that there was some battle within the church from um, Jews who wanted this new church to be to continue to be a Jewish only thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and they were they had their whole list of things. It's like okay, great, 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 got it. Well, okay, Jesus, Messiah, right? All right, but all of you that want to follow this Messiah, we got to talk about these dietary laws. We got to talk mm-hmm. about circumcision. We got they wanted to to Judaize to Jewish up yeah. the 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 church and keep it that way. And and so we know these guys wore on Peter. We, we again we know from church history that these guys were like picking at Peter all the time. And there was a point where Peter just kind of gave up. Fine, fine, fine. When I'm with you, I'll only eat the clean food. When I'm hanging out with the, you know, when I'm over here with the Gentile guys, this is down the road some ways. When I'm over here with these other guys, then I'm going to eat anything. Mm-hmm. And and Paul's telling Peter, look, you can't do that. You know, you yeah. you can't you can't let yourself get caught up in this trap of of behaving in this in this rigid, um, you know, bringing back this ceremonial law again. So Peter did get a refresher course in this. Yeah, it, it's it's like you said in that. It always reminds me of like the middle school lunchroom because <laughs> in in that story, Peter is eating with the Gentiles. He's sharing the lunchroom table with all the Gentiles. And then the Jewish contingent shows up, and Peter's like, uh, I can't sit with you anymore, <laughs> you yeah. and runs over. Yeah. And Paul says he stood condemned. And Paul, who's got a backbone of titanium, he does. <laughs> you know, calls Peter out yeah. and then calls Barnabas out and says, no, this is not the gospel. The big difference, I think, Sam, between Peter and Paul is that Peter really didn't like confrontation. I think Paul almost lived for confrontation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, he just seems to, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that we've both talked about in the past that we love about Paul is that Paul comes in the door and lays down the doctrine on you. 
And then he talks about the, you know, and how then shall we live? And we know this by his writings, obviously. I don't know if his conversations were that way or not, but the way that Paul's writings are always set up is, let me lay out the gospel for you. Let me tell you the doctrine here. And then I'm going to get to, and this is how you should be living <laughs> based on mm-hmm. what I just told you. So I, I really, I've always liked that about him. Yeah. So that's the way that we should do our daily life. Like if I, if I just think, oh, gospel, I have to blah, 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 blah. You know, and I think oh, these obligations, these requirements. Then all of a sudden, my faith begins to feel like slavery. But where Paul's brilliance and the way he writes all of his epistles, where he lays out, this is what's been done for you. Right. These are the theological truths of what Christ has done for you. You are free. You're saved by grace. He has chosen you. You're safe now. Out of gratitude, you do likewise. And that's the only way you can live because if it's only – I mean if, if if you're pursuing a life of holiness in an attempt to, to please God, you know, out of, you know, hoping to earn his favor, it will become slavery in no time. Yeah. You have to remind yourself of what's been done for you already. So continuing on here uh, midway through verse 23, it tells us what happens the next day. It says, the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. I, again, th- I said I wasn't going to pause at each verse, but here I'm pausing at the first verse. I'm, <laughs> imagine- like I'm imagining that there's a couple of guys there that are like, this we got to see. <laughs> <laughs> There was some very unusual stuff happening there in Joppa, and there were some brothers, some, and these would have been Jews. They were like, we, we, we got to see this. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. <clears throat> so, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. That's a bold move. You pointed that out when we were talking about that ahead of time. That would have been big. That means word of this is going to get around, right? Mm-hmm. So he's he's anti- he's inviting his his relatives and close friends to Alpha. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Come and ask some questions of a man that I'm bringing. Yes, you know. And this is bold. Yeah, because you know, as dangerous this is this is first century history so fascinating to me. As dangerous as it would have felt for Peter to affiliate with Romans. The Romans would have felt every bit as dangerous affiliating with Jews because the Romans had all of these festivals. They're, they defined patriotism by how well you worshipped all this, you know, the pantheon of gods and, you know, offered libations and sacrificed your meat and all these different things. And so now you have these Jews. Romans typically had, had tolerated Jews. Because Jews weren't really evangelistic. They were different. They only believed in one God, which was offensive to the Romans, but they stayed to themselves, so they tolerated that. But these Christians are now going out telling everybody that they have to worship Jesus or that they should worship Jesus, and that became offensive. It was a threat to everything they held dear. It was unpatriotic to the Romans. And so now you have Cornelius. It's it's not just, hey, come hear a different religious perspective, but it's seditious. I mean, Christianity at, at its inception to the Romans was considered seditious. It was against the emperor. It was against their culture. It was against their legacy. Um, and so to sit down and hear from them, you know, inviting them to hear from somebody who they would have considered as a culture by and large seditious – so this is a very dangerous thing for Cornelius too. Mm-hmm. Peter's taking big risks. Cornelius is taking big risks to come together in the gospel. Yeah. So verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. You know, what this called to mind immediately was Herod um, in Acts 12. When Herod is talking and the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not oh, of yeah. a man. And Herod didn't do anything to correct that, that impression. <laughs> Go on. Yeah. The, then immediately the angel of the Lord <laughs> struck him and he was eaten by worms and died. Um, so Peter was not making that mistake. But I also think, too, I was talking again, this is something we were talking about before we started recording. This was not in modern day parlance, folks. If you're, if you don't know the, uh, there's something on, there's something that's popular on online forum chatter, something called the humble brag. It's like, you know, it, when you do a humble brag, it's when you, you, you say something humble about yourself, but you're really patting yourself on the back for your humility. 
It's a humble brag. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, this was not a humble brag. Peter did not pick up Cornelius saying, no, no, while on the inside he was going, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, if Peter has learned nothing at all, if he's learned nothing over the, over the things that have taken place recently, one of the things he has learned is he has learned this is not all about me. It's like, you know, he, this is genuine humility on Peter's part. You know, stand up. I'm just like you. Um, and as he talked with him, verse 27, he went in and found many persons gathered. Had to be a shock. Verse 28, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Um, there's a boy, there's a, there's a mouthful right there. Um, but this got me thinking as I was reading this for doing the study notes is how often we make that judgment of somebody else as being common or unclean. Um, and I posed some questions about that that our staff was kind of banging around on this morning. I was like, when you meet people at, at you know, when you encounter people at church, what is it about them that makes you feel like either, hey, they fit right in or what are they doing here? You know, that kind of thing. And I think that we do have a tendency to judge the book by its cover. Um, we do have a mm-hmm. tendency to separate people into, okay, you're a God person and you most definitely are not. Um, mm-hmm. And God doesn't want us to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, part of that, part of that is true that we like to be around people that look like us, think like us, act like us. Right. And so when you see somebody who's, who's different, you know, different what, in a million different ways, we kind of go, oh, I'm kind of uncomfortable. What's going on here? Right. Um, and the, the, one of the hallmarks of the gospel is that it calls all corners of that sheet, you know. <laughs> it's it's for all people, regardless of, of wealth, regardless of your race, regardless of your politics. I mean, it's it is a calling of all people. Yeah. Um and and for you know, you see that all through the gospel. You know, Jesus Jesus does this where, you know, Tom brought this out in one of his sermons that he called Simon the Zealot. You know, who was seeking to overthrow Rome? The zealots went around assassinating anybody who was influential in Rome, and yet he calls a tax collector who's on the complete opposite political end of the spectrum, who's collecting taxes for Rome. Why does Jesus do that? Um, you know, you, you'll see him interact. You know, show unbelievable kindness, even almost tending to favor Samaritans and bragging about them in his parables and interactions in front of the Jews, like. He was always seeking to tear down dividing lines and to show us that the, the, the true nature of the gospel, the character of God, calls all of them. Yeah. He, you know, we have to be humbled enough to recognize <laughs> that when we stand, all of us, in the presence of God, we are all in desperate need. Every bit is equally, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, I might have a couple of dollars more or less in my bank account, but next to God, we are in utter poverty, mm-hmm. you know, um, and so we are both in desperate need. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the the gateway of the gospel and the gateway to every virtue. We've said this a whole bunch. Yep. Is humility. Yep. Very much That's so. where Peter's like, whoa, 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 you're not bowing down to me. Stand up. Right. I too am just a man, just like you. I also think that it's interesting that it was Cornelius's like first thought was to was to drop at Peter's feet. Um, that as I when I saw him do that, I thought that's a Roman thing to do. The heart behind Cornelius, you got to think, Cornelius in every worldly way of measuring things is yes. Peter's superior. Yep. He has more power. He has more wealth. He has more influence. He has a better position, a better job, a better. You go down the line. You know, he's he's living in the better place. Caesarea would have been way, way nicer than Joppa. Sure. Um, and here when he comes, because he's so desperate to have a piece of the Lord, he falls down and worships even the messenger. Mm. Um, and you see the humility right out of the gates of Cornelius here. Yeah. And both of these guys, Peter's coming in humility and Cornelius is coming in humility. Yep. And beautiful things happen. Yeah. Well, and you think about the, the, you know, who should have the upper hand in the relationship. If Peter snapped his fingers and said, "Somebody kill Cornelius," 
Probably wouldn't have happened. <laughs> had Cornelius snapped his fingers and said, kill this man, we would not have had anything. First and Second Peter would never have been written. <laughs> so uh, I'm just saying there was a big, you're right, there's a big power disparity between those two guys. Uh, so verse 30, and Cornelius said, Peter's asked him, why did you send for me? Cornelius is going to answer here in verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. If that's not an opening for evangelism, I've never yeah. seen one in scripture. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never. I don't know that I've ever experienced this as a pastor. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure not. <laughs> it's it's really close to the to the Philippian jailer, you know, uh, isn't it? You know, sirs, what yeah. must I do Tell to be me saved? What, I must do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you think, Cornelius? Clearly, you asked earlier, is Cornelius saved? And we came to the conclusion, no. And I think you picked that up very – I think Cornelius realizes he's not saved, even though he prays and even though he gives alms and he, he's doing all of the, the religious things. He recognizes that something is not right. Mm-hmm. He's still desperate and hungry for more. And it's like, I will do whatever. Peter, come, please share all that you've been commanded by the Lord. I think Cornelius recognizes that there's still something amiss. Yeah. Um, I agree. Clearly. I agree. I mean, that's, you know, we, you and I have both at different times shared our own stories about how we sort of came to faith. Mm-hmm. And, and mine, as I had related to you, was, you know, being raised in a very religious, you know, going to church every week. My parents took me. It wasn't my choice. But I, but I got into it. I bought into it. I really learned the theology. And I was an acolyte, you know, with the robe mm-hmm. and the candelabra and all that sort of stuff. And, mm-hmm. and so, I knew I it's like I knew all about God. I knew all about the Bible. I knew all I could quote you Luther's catechism. I was there, man. I I had memorized big chunks of this stuff, but I knew I was missing something. That's me. I mean, I was I was raised as a Catholic altar boy. I could recite the mass to you, but I couldn't yep. tell you what any of it meant. Right. I couldn't tell you what it meant. So, and you had a sense that you that you were missing something, and and it's funny you have this feeling that what we're missing is this feeling like we belong to God, mm-hmm. relationship. Yes, relationship. That's exactly it. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a thing I was talking with somebody maybe two three weeks ago, but we were, I was talking with them about how you know what a shame it is in evangelicalism that we have kind of reduced the gospel to an equation. This is really profound, actually, for me, um, where we say, you know, you have to do these things and accept Jesus in order to get into heaven. It's transactional. And the re- yeah, it's transactional. But, but even beyond that, like the scriptures don't come to you and say Jesus is the means to the end. If you, if you, if you take him, then you get the much better prize of heaven. You know, when you accept Jesus, you get Jesus he, he is, is the, the prize. He's yeah. your portion. He's your reward. He's what satisfies. Heaven can – whatever. I'm sure it's nice. But he is the prize of heaven. And we do not live in the modern-day church as though Jesus is the prize. We treat him like he's a means to get the prize. Oh, accept Jesus into my heart and I get heaven? No, wrong. Like that's not what we're after. You accept Jesus to get Jesus. Right. He's the prize. And so I think, you know, when we talked about, you know, we had the religion, but there was still this void. What's the void? It's it's him. It's yeah. the relationship with him. Yeah. And the more you get of him, the more you experience little glimpses and tastes and flavors of heaven here. Yeah. Um, yes. You know. That's very, very true. Very true. So Peter is going to tell Cornelius all that God has commanded him to say. Um, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and uh, and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter basically runs through a little, you know, summary of the history of Jesus. Um, obviously, these guys being Romans and being Roman soldiers in the region of Caesarea, they knew the story of Jesus. They, mm-hmm. they knew who Jesus was. That, that, that crucifixion thing would have been big news mm-hmm. uh, among them. So, um, but then Peter went right to the resurrection. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and and one of the other things is, and it's interesting how Peter—it's like Peter knows this. He's been living according to the traditions of the Jewish people that had kind of cloistered themselves off and said, you know, we're we're the chosen people, and we're a blessing just for us, and God's covenant is just with us and the outside nations. You know, literally to hell with them. You know, now all of a sudden, at the end of this, you notice Peter saying to him, all the prophets. Prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, what's interesting is you go back and you read the prophets, and nowhere in Scripture do you ever find, you know, the Lord speaking and saying, "This is just for you, Israel." In fact, quite to the opposite. When when Isaiah's prophesying, when Jeremiah's prophesying, he's talking about how the Messiah is going to be a light to the nations, mm-hmm. how they're going to be grafted in through mm-hmm. him. It's it's constantly saying that God is raising up this Messiah through the Jewish line to be a blessing to the nations. Sure. And so they missed that. They they took this this idea that God was going to use, you know, a Jewish Messiah and they said, well, clearly this is just for us. We're the superior ones. And God, at the beginning of his church expanding all over the globe, is tearing that notion apart. Mm. Hmm. So the uh, the reaction to Peter's explanation of the gospel here, the conclusion here in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, those guys from Joppa, the brothers from Joppa, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. It's, you know... We talked about this last week when we were talking about Acts chapter 2, that that God had a reason and a, and a point of bringing the Holy Spirit down in a way that was audible and visible to other people standing there. It wasn't like, I feel the Spirit come upon me. It's that guy on the other side of the room says, I just saw the Spirit land on that guy over there. So this was <laughs> something that it was another dramatic manifestation of the of the Spirit and I think that, as we have been talking about, it was done to to drive home the point to Peter and to these other Jewish believers that had come with him from Joppa. It's like, yes, these people are just like you. My spirit is on them, just like you. Um, I think that you know. I think that that's the reason for this dramatic manifestation. Yeah, it's it's. It's interesting to me, you know, when we look back at the Ethiopian eunuch who's from Ham, you know, right before that, there's a revival with the Samaritans and the spirit falls upon them. And then you have the Ethiopian eunuch who's, you know, just yearning to be with the Lord and the spirit. When you get to the Apostle Paul, who's the Hebrew, 
and the Lord comes down, what does he do? It's, you know, he's, he's the one who's saying, no, 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 this is just for us Hebrews. What does the Lord do? He comes down in this terrifying light, sends Paul into blindness for a few days and says, why are you persecuting me? Mm-hmm. And it's not until Paul has had some, <laughs> some time to think about it, you know, <laughs> where that really comes home. And he has this experience. And then here you see, you know, Cornelius and, and his relatives and friends who are experiencing the Holy Spirit falling upon them. And I that is such a powerful thing because it's it's the Holy Spirit who's validating your mind. Mm-hmm. You belong to me, to all these different people. It's really, really wonderful. Um, you know, I've I've had several experiences in ministry where I've like been a part of something. I you know, they didn't start speaking in tongues, but sharing the gospel with somebody um, where it was just evident that the Holy Spirit was moving. I, and one of those that stands out most in my mind was when I was doing evangelism explosion when I was in seminary. Um, we went around delivering presents to children whose parents were in prison. And so we would go into the home. We'd arrange the visit. We would give gifts you know, that we'd bought, wrapped, come into the house, deliver them. And if they were open, then share the gospel with them. And so I went into the house, and it was three generations of women, a grandmother, a mother, and a young girl. And the the, the grandmother was a widow. Um, the, the mother um, had her boyfriend was in prison, and the, the daughter was older, and she was pregnant, but her boyfriend who had impregnated her had been killed. Mm-hmm. And it was just you know lots of sadness in the house. And so we started talking about the gospel. And as I'm in the middle, you know, explaining the gospel that God loves them and, you know, that he He has a heart for those that are in mourning. And, you know, Psalm 34, 18, um, God draws near to the, to the brokenhearted and those crushed in spirit. And I remember talking with him about how free the gospel is and all that stuff. And then I started praying. And as I'm praying, they are falling on the floor weeping wow. with gratitude like over and it wasn't it wasn't one of them it was an overwhelming experience and i remember you know me presbyterian sam at this point am going i don't have a category for this what am i supposed to do <laughs> uh, let's let's analyze this you know <laughs> theologically was, speaking what was your impression of <laughs> her but it was overwhelming to see the power of the Holy Spirit moving in these yeah. women all simultaneously together. It was it was wonderful. Yeah. Um, lots of tears in that moment, and you know I've had moments similar to that, never as obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're wonderful, really wonderful when you see and you can't explain it. Like okay, this is clearly. I did not say anything that eloquent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. This is clearly the spirit taking over and moving. Yeah, um, that's cool. yeah, that is cool. Um, so the passage here concludes with Peter asking, "Is there some reason we should not baptize these guys with water?" Um, <laughs> that is, I, I mean, th- that's like the ultimate outward sign that. These guys are part of the club now, right? I mean, that's what that's all about. And that's the idea. You know, even baptism now for an adult, you know, that's not brought in under, you know, kind of covenant theology. Mm -hmm. When an adult is baptized, it's an outward expression of an inward faith, we say. Um, So the baptism of water is, is kind of mirroring the fact that you have already been baptized in the Spirit and you're already a, a member of the faith. Right. You know, a member of the family of God, right? Yeah, this is—I mean, this is a fairly emphatic conclusion to this whole thing. It began with Cornelius, this Roman guy, having a vision off by himself in Caesarea, being told to send for Peter, and it ends up with Gentiles being baptized into the church. You know, and. It- it seems like if you could – I'm sure Peter is probably playing this back in his mind that if you went through you know, the life of Jesus and his ministry, he's always speaking superlatively, like with great favor toward those who are not Hebrews. So when he goes you know, to the Syrophoenician woman, she's described as having great faith. The centurion at Caper- Capernaum is described as having great faith. When he feeds 
the 5,000 Jews, they were ungrateful and they're following around for food. But then he feeds the <laughs> yeah. 4,000 Gentiles at the Decapolis and they're wonderful and he speaks highly of Samaritans and all through his ministry, it's like he's tearing down the proud religious leaders. You know, the humble, he's all in. Yeah. The foreigners, he's all in. Like, and you see him speaking highly, building those people up. But the ones that always get the barbs from Jesus are the ones who think, you know what? God is lucky to have me on his team. Mm. I am the right, you know, wealth, status, race, you know, power, you know, whatever it is. When you fail to be humbled in front of God, he will humble you. Yeah. But here you see him reaching out all through his earthly ministry. He's always lifting up the foreigner. And so it shouldn't be any surprise to Peter that the mission for the early church is to go after the foreigner. Hmm. Well, that's a good word, and I think that's one we're going to end on. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us and that you've enjoyed this study uh, on the life of Peter. We've enjoyed bringing it to you. Um, if you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O-Vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash outofwater. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify, as well as in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app. So it's where all fine podcasts can be found. We'll be back next week with the kickoff of our new series from the book of Isaiah, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.